Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720. Whenever I've lost my reading glasses at home, just don't know where I left them, uh, I develop various hypotheses and check them out, and they don't work out. And then I remember a quotation from Sherlock Holmes, who said, It is a maxim of mine that when you have excluded the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That's when I realize that my reading glasses must be in the side pocket of the robe that I was wearing earlier in the day. And it always turns out that I finally come to the solution when I apply the Holmesian maxim. The Holmesian maxim. And tonight we are going to be talking about the greatest of all living detectives, Sherlock Holmes, and tracking his fabulous uh, and most impressive career. I am joined by three enthusiasts for the life and times and achievements of Sherlock Holmes. They are Thomas Joyce, Eli Lebo, and Susan Diamond, who I will introduce more fully. And we'll be examining just what it was that makes and uh, that made and makes Sherlock Holmes the paramount detective of all time. Tonight we are commemorating and we are celebrating and we are also analyzing the career of Sherlock Holmes. Is it true that Holmes, the great detective, is in fact still alive? Very definitely. He lives in Sussex, England. He must be one of the oldest people in the world. He, drip, he drips honey. He raises bees. In Sussex, I know that he retired from his right. detective practice many years ago to do that, but that retirement must have been some 60 years ago. Yes, he's 140 now. 140 years old? Yes. Well, what's, the, what's the secret of his longevity? The royal jelly of the queen bee. He's got bees as old as he is, probably. Uh-huh. So he's discovered that eating, or does he slather over his skin, the royal jelly of the queen bee, and that keeps him <laughs> I alive? I think he mainly ingests it by mouth, but uh -huh. I think he also has an excellent complexion, I've heard. Is he still in any way involved in the art of detection? Well, he gets As a consultant or whatever? Oh, yeah. He gets letters constantly from all over the world, people asking for his help. But uh, does, he, does he render that help? We had a uh, young man, what was his name? Uh, Tony. This Tony, uh, Tony Harry. Hillam, Harry's, who was the secretary at 221 Baker Street, not B. And uh, he came to Northeastern, and he was talking about the letters, and the biggest spate of letters that uh, Holmes got, they come to he gets more letters than anybody except Santa Claus during the year. Uh -huh. The biggest spate of letters came to Watergate, Americans wanting Mr. Holmes to help them. He, Seriously. Mm -hmm. He could have helped to unravel all of that. Absolutely. He, he could also have been called in. I wonder if he was consulted, at least via transatlantic uh, cable, on the uh, Kennedy assassination, possibly. I think he probably was, because his brother Mycroft is still very active in the British government. In fact, as Holmes said, he is the British government. There is a novel about the uh, Kennedy assassination, Holmes. And Holmes? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Sherlock Holmes in Dallas. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Oh, yes. You know, I was so eager to plunge into our subject tonight that I haven't yet fully or properly introduced you, though I mentioned your names earlier before we took the newscast. Our guests are, and you've heard from all three of them already, Susan Diamond, who is a longstanding member of several Sherlockian societies. Later on, we have to talk about this whole structure of Holmes fans and the ways in which they continue to pursue scholarship on the career of Holmes in their many different societies. You are indeed the... I'm the Stamford of the Criterion Bar Association. The Criterion Bar Association, which is one of those Sherlockian societies. Correct. 
and Stamford is drawn from one of the is, adventures. That's correct, and I'm sta the Stamford is the president. Is the president, whereas uh, in the uh, Hugo's Companions organization, uh, the head is known as Sir Hugo, and that's Sir Hugo Baskerville, and both Thomas Joyce, another one of our guests, who otherwise is an antiquarian bookseller, and Eli Liebau, who otherwise is professor of English at Northeastern Illinois University, both have served as Sir Hugo's, though not at the same time. Right. Sure. All right. Uh, now then, what do we understand about the origins of Holmes? For that matter, what do we understand about his distinctive approach to the art of detection? In general, what is to be said about this man who is commended to have been, and in some sense, though in long retirement, to still be the ultimate genius of ratiocinative uh, mystery solving. He, he was one of the first, he was the f world's first consulting detective mm -hmm. and, and uh, set the standard for everybody to follow him. What well, did he bring to it? What, what was his distinctive and unique contribution, would you say? He was a gentleman, which was very important. He was a man who was not concerned about money, also very important, which placed him a niche or a notch above uh, certainly a lot of other people. And he was a man who, uh, before we meet him, had certainly trained to be all this. Uh, Holmes graded Baritsu, Japanese uh, art of self-defense. He was a great single stick man. He could uh, handle himself. We never single stick it. man, what does that mean? Uh, he could use a long stick. Uh, Defending himself, a mm -hmm. medieval form of uh, jousting. The way Robin Hood and his yes, merry men absolutely. sometimes did, mm -hmm. I see. Mm -hmm. Well, and he really was a scholar. As Eli said, he did study to be a detective. He went into it consciously as his career, and he studied disciplines that no one else would have thought about, as when he wrote a monograph about the different types of tobacco ash. None of the yarders ever even considered that. Oh, there was ash in the ground. And so he applied his skills and his knowledge in a very methodical way to every sphere of knowledge that he felt would help him as a detective. And that was rather a revolutionary idea back then. I mean, he had so much talent, he wrote a monograph. By the way, there is some one of our groups called the Trifling Monographers. Uh, he wrote a monograph on the motets of Lassus, the medieval composer. So this was a man who got around. He was, of course, as well, a very fine musician, though yes. I guess he never performed publicly, did he? No. And he liked music. He loved music. Well, he often turned to his violin, violin when course, mm -hmm. in a contemplative mood, and that would mm -hmm. help him to right. think through a particularly mm -hmm. difficult problem. Dr. Watson did not always enjoy listening to the violin, however. Yeah. Well, now what about Watson? And for that matter, what about this fellow uh, uh, Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? The literary agent. Was that what Doyle was? He was a literary agent for whom? For Dr. Watson? Dr. Yes. Watson. And he was a writer in, in his own right in other areas. Yeah. He wrote good agent. mysteries. I mean, he wrote good horror stories. Yeah. Well, Watson then is essentially the amanuensis, the biographer, oh, right. the, the reporter to the world of the achievements of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, that's seen as one of the great friendships. What was the real nature of that friendship? I think that's part of the magic of the stories, that, that absolute uh, friendship of these two people. The two are much, what sounds ridiculous, but the two are much stronger than one. I mean, take Holmes by himself or Watson by himself, you've got something. Somebody has said Watson was 
perhaps the most solid British citizen in 19th century English literature. Mm -hmm. But put the two of them together in their rooms at Baker Street, and you have a, a most amazing, comfortable, reassuring view of the world. Well, also, I think it's important, Holmes rarely shows emotion, but when he does, it is in cases when he's showing how he cares about Watson in the three Garadebs when Watson is injured. Holmes tells Killer Evans that, you know, it's lucky for you, basically, that Watson's alive, because otherwise you wouldn't be. No. And there is, by the end of, and in his last bow, great depth of feeling between the two men, and in a very believable way, and while some people have tried to project another cast on it, I think, you know, just a very deep friendship. But Watson seems to be rather self-abnegating, or at least self-diminishing, because what the image of himself that comes through in the stories is that he's rather dull-witted. Not slow, slow of mind. I think he's more the typical individual rather than he's a successful doctor. He's sustained mm -hmm. successful marriages. We debate over how many, but somewhere's between two and three or four of them. So now I think that's kind of a misconception, which unfortunately, when Nigel Bruce portrayed him, that that promulgated that idea. Yeah, but towards the end, he starts. Uh, he's, he's almost as quick as Holmes picking up clues. And. Valley of Fear when he's mm -hmm. when Holmes complains about his pocky sense of humor after mm -hmm. Watson zings him very thoroughly in the yeah. beginning of the case. You said a moment ago that Holmes rarely shows emotion, though he does when it comes to his feelings for Watson. Holmes shows emotion with regard to at least one other person in what is commonly known as the canon, and that's Irene Adler, the great actress. Uh, was that indeed the love of his life, or were there a number of loves, even though they're veiled over now. Well, I think she was the primary love of his life, and as you may know, Nero Wolfe was the son of that liaison. He did have... No, I, I was... Perhaps I've heard rumors. I didn't know that that had been established. Uh, yes, it's been pretty thoroughly documented. W.S. Nero Wolfe, the great American detective That's of European right. origin. Exactly. But Nero Wolfe is commonly... In Montenegro, exactly. Oh. He's commonly mm -hmm. viewed as a Montenegrin. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's right. Well, when Holmes was on hiatus, when people mistakenly thought he had died... After the, the struggle at the Reichenbach Falls. Mm -hmm, absolutely. He did get together with Irene in Montenegro, and uh, Nero was the result of the liaison. I see. And anything you read about Nero Wolfe, he is almost identical physically to his uncle Mycroft. There's very strong similarities. He's a big, fat fellow. <laughs> Somebody has a theory that Mycroft is the father, but I don't want to go into that. I can't imagine Mycroft having that much energy, Eli. I'm sorry. I'll vote for the mask. You can't imagine Mycroft fathering anyone, then. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. But there are a lot of similarities between them. Later on, Holmes did have, although this was more for political reasons and the service of his country, he did have a liaison with Wallace Simpson, the Duchess of Windsor. Oh, no. Oh, yes. He was about 80 at the time. And is there a progeny from that? Oh, yes. That I'm glad you're well. sitting down, Milt. Elvis Presley is the master's son by Wallace. Well, now, that's nonsense. No. How can that be proved? Is, is that the result of scholarly inquiry? Yes, very definite on my part. No, they were, there was contacts made. It was at the time the British government was very concerned about the affair that Edward was having with mm -hmm. Wallace. And Mycroft got Holmes involved, and he was supposed to persuade her to break it off. And, well, he did have a liking for adventuresses, and I think he thought if he got more involved with Wallace, she would do it. And she mm -hmm. was kind of turned on by the idea of seducing an 80-year-old consulting detective who was uninterested in women. She thought that was like the ultimate sexual challenge. So 
they did get together, and they were both very surprised. She had certainly thought she was safe sleeping with an 80-year-old gentleman, and she was wrong. And she had to leave the prince for a while and go off and have the child discreetly. And as soon as the child was born, Mycroft took it to a poor couple in Mississippi whom Wallace Simpson had located through American connotations. And they had, the woman was pregnant. And so she said she was going to have twins, but her son Jesse died. And Elvis was brought in as the other child. So they just said they had twins and one died. Now, did Elvis himself know of? He does know. You know, well, you know he's still alive, too. And he does visit his father every summer in Sussex. They have some really great duets together because they both have a common love of music, the martial mm -hmm. arts, as Eli mentioned. Uh, the dog that Elvis sang to in You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog was named after his father, Sherlock. That's true. And There's so much in this world that ordinary folks don't appreciate. And where does all this <laughs> rather esoteric or inside knowledge come from? From diligent study on my part and reading mm -hmm. many works. You are a Sherlockian scholar. I call myself one. There are probably others who would disagree as to the vein. But, but, but. that's a special sort of craft, which is mm -hmm. pursued by many. That's, there's sort of a guild of Sherlockian scholars around the world. Yes. And they are organized into the various uh, Sherlockian societies. Correct. What's the structure of that, Tom? Uh, is the Baker Street Irregulars somehow the overall society to which all the others are affiliated? That's right. In, in the United States, it's the Baker Street Irregulars. In London or England, it's the uh, Sherlock Holmes Society of London. Mm -hmm. And then each of the local chapters is, a, is an offshoot. Uh, usually they apply for some kind of approval to the head organization, and they become uh, science societies or, or uh, ch children, children's societies, if you will, and uh, to get an official endorsement that way. I should add, though, that the adventurousness of Sherlock Holmes is not a scion of the Baker Street Irregulars, which I belong to. The adventuresses, did you say? Yes. We are headed by the principal, unprincipled adventuress, Evelyn Herzog. And we were founded because at that time, although it has since changed, the Baker Street Irregulars did not admit women into their membership. So the adventuresses were founded, and we're the one group that is a preeminent group that's not a scion of the DSI. Well, that's a rather Sherlockian touch in itself, isn't it? Though, to be sure, he had some secret love affairs. His life, as described in the stories, or rather in the uh, record, that the cases that Dr. Watson uh, kept and provided to posterity, uh, he, Holmes, comes through as rather an ascetic figure, mm -hmm. and women figure only as helpless victims who are worried or frightened at the possibility of being murdered or uh, concerned yeah. about uh, some family member, but they don't really figure as the equals of either Holmes or Watson. Actually, there's... Case Except for Irene. No, well, in the yellow face, Effie Monroe rather bests, Watson, uh, bests Holmes, and in fact, he says to Watson, you know, if I goof up again, say Norbury. So that's one case of it. And also, Holmes tells Watson at one point the charmingest most charming woman I ever knew was a lady who poisoned her three children. Mm. I think it was for the insurance money or something along those lines. A lot, a lot of the, uh, what's the word I want? He, clients. He distrusted us. He was yeah. suspicious yeah. of us. Yeah. But a lot of the clients, for, compared to a lot of other Victorian women, are very resourceful. Mary Morstan, yeah. he tells And uh, most all of them, they work. They are secretaries. Uh, they are governesses and... The literary agent, now you bring this in, literary agents uh, 
sisters were governesses, and certainly there is a great empathy, a feeling for governesses in throughout the uh, canon mm -hmm. or the holy writing. Yeah. But someone but, says of him, indeed, in the sign of four, mm -hmm. uh, says of him that he had an experience of women which extends over many nations and three continents. Now, that That's was Dr. What? Watson. They said that about Dr. Watson. Oh, they said Watson. that about Watson. Oh, yes. no, no, Watson, Watson was a ladies' man, yeah. Oh, then Watson is more of a ladies' man. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. He was married several times. Yes. Yet the two of them are quite content to live in those Baker Street rooms, as you call them, mm -hmm. uh, and live a sort of a bachelor... In between marriage. ...aesthetic existence, in between Watson's marriage. Yes, he would go off and get married, yeah. and then... The wives seem to disappear and <laughs> we know, return. We know a good deal about the famous cases, the ones that are reported by Dr. Watson, but there are so many other cases that are hinted at of which we have little uh, knowledge. For example, there is that terribly enticing and teasing line about the story concerning the giant rat of Sumatra, right. for which the world is not yet ready. That's true. Have, has anyone figured out what that case really was? There are at least five books well, reporting to figure it I'd out. I'd like to hear something about that and about some of the other hidden, uh, not Watsonian cases, mm -hmm. uh, not reported by Watson, that is. I'd like to hear something about that, as I'm sure our listeners would. We'll turn to that perhaps right after we pause for these words. We are investigating the real Sherlock Holmes, the world's greatest detective, but uh, much of uh, his career and much about his antecedents and about his private life has been veiled over for many years, but in recent years has been unlocked by a band of Sherlockian scholars whom we find all over the world, certainly particularly the English-speaking world, and a number of them resident right here in Chicago. Three of those are Thomas Joyce, who apart from his Sherlockian investigations, is an antiquarian bookseller. Eli Liebau, who, when he's not employed in Sherlockian research, is professor of English at Northeastern Illinois University. And Susan Diamond, who, when she's not pursuing these matters, is a management consultant. Well, then, here's the exact quotation which comes from uh, one of these stories, namely from the Sussex Vampire. Matilda Briggs was a ship which is associated with the giant rat of Sumatra, a story for which the world is not yet prepared. Who says that? Is it Watson or is it Holmes who says that? What's Watson? Watson talking. He usually throws out the other tales. Yeah. yeah, well, so Watson knows about the giant rat of Sumatra. What have we, but he doesn't write about it, what has been disclosed in later years? There was one case where I remember the rat, the rat uh, was nurtured in the, uh, what's the word I want, sewers of London. And he was in the right part of London, the west side, and he was, uh, what would be the word? The garbage was good, and the rat grew, and uh, out of the sewers he goes, and as I recall, he gets on a barge, and he, uh, that is how he gets to Sumatra, but the whole thing is very intricate, very well done, and the man who wrote it uh, was an expert on nutrition, because remember, much of what he was saying had to do with how the rat was fed. Mm -hmm. But with what crime is the rat associated? I don't know that there's any crime in the book. The rat just overwhelms people. They're afraid of the rat. I see. Mm -hmm. Was he ever a plague carrier, Eli, in any of the versions? I'm yes. I think the first one he's a plague carrier. Because that's guy. what you generally yeah. associate The first with one he was a plague carrier. What are some of the other hidden adventures, not given in the Watsonian canon, but... Well, Watson says all the... Well, not all, but a lot of the tales are in this old tin dispatch box at Cox and Company at a bank at Charing Cross. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there are quite a few of them. My favorite is the case in which uh, Holmes solves the case by the depths to which the parsley sank in the <laughs> butter on a very hot day. Now, that I thought was rather ingenious. But that was repeated. That explanation was uh, in, in the exploits of Sherlock Holmes that was recorded by Adrian Conan Doyle and John Dixon Carr, mm-hmm. who undertook to, to re- explain some of those untold cases like uh, Riccoletti with the club foot mm-hmm. and the abominable wife, uh, the case of the aluminum crutch. Mm-hmm. I personally always liked the one about the remarkable worm unknown to science that was in the matchbox. Yeah, some, some of the titles, the untold tales, are, are the best. Well, they're fascinating. Mm-hmm. And James Fillimore stepped out for his um, stepped back in for his umbrella and was never seen again. All of these are untold tales. Untold yes. tales. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about the told tales? Uh, in which do we find Holmes at his purest and finest uh, mm. performance of his sort of protoplasmic computer style? I think he's very good in the Valley of Fear. Uh, Remind us of what happened. What happened in the Valley of Fear? Uh, the Valley of Fear tells the story about um, a gentleman whose uh, face is blown off, and they're trying to identify him. And Holmes and Watson are called to the case in uh, outside of London. And when they get there, Holmes is able to deduce that in fact the dead man is not the man who owned, who was living in the house. Uh, that, that in fact is somebody else. And he eventually links that person. The the dead man is actually the attempted murderer uh, who was after a fellow named Bertie Edwards who was hiding in an old priest hole. And uh, Bertie Edwards was a Pinkerton agent from Chicago. Who from had, Chicago, no. From mm-hmm. Chicago. Yeah. And he'd been hired uh, to uh, investigate the Molly Maguires in Pennsylvania in the coal fields. Mm-hmm. And the assassin was sent to get him after he sent a number of the Molly Maguires away to prison. Uh, they decided they needed to kill him in, in retribution, and they sent an assassin after him. And he was able to turn the tables on him. Although ultimately he does find Professor Moriarty, it's really his first appearance. He doesn't really appear in the case, but as Holmes warns John Douglas Verdi Edwards, he says there are much more dangerous people after you now than were, and that was very true. Yeah. And that starts mm-hmm. the Holmes Moriarty relationship. Well, the first case is certainly not the best example. The study in Scarlet's not the best example of. Holmes at his best, but that's where you get the method. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the two men meet, and Watson spends a couple of weeks trying to figure out what this strange man does, and finally Holmes has to tell him. Holmes tells him there's, there's been a murder at the Brixton Road, and off they go. The game's afoot. And uh, they go into the uh, room where the murdered man is lying on the floor. Some marks on the wall, some marks on the floor. What do you make of it, Watson? And Watson immediately goes, ah, what can I make of it? And Holmes says something like, uh, aside from the fact that the murderer is over six feet tall, has nosebleeds, smokes trichinopoly cigars, is left-handed, and was in a hurry, I can deduce very little, and that's the beginning. <laughs> You're off. And Watson's first reaction to those specifications concerning the murderer is what? At that point, first he would not believe, first he sees a, a, uh, an article that Holmes has written, and he thinks this whole business of Holmes's deduction is ridiculous. But at that moment at the murder site, he is impressed. That impresses him. Do you remember how Holmes indeed determined those four characteristics oh, of the murder? Oh, uh, yes, there, yes. Uh, from the stride of the gentleman, mm-hmm. there, is some, uh, there is some blood on the floor. He realizes this man is, uh, obviously will bleed from the nose. And uh, also on the wall, 
Yeah. Are the word uh, the letters R E C H E, which Lestrade or one of the policemen later thinks is Rachel uh, truncated, but this is the German word for revenge. And Holmes has to tell the police, no, 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 you don't want Rachel. That's that's revenge. Mm -hmm. And then he, oh, the other thing that's rather interesting about, it, I remember reading this as a kid, and uh, Holmes tells Watson after four or five chapters, I'm going away, which surprises Watson. And he says, there's a cabbie downstairs. He'll be right up to get my trunk. The cabbie comes up. And as he bends over the trunk, Holmes throws the uh, handcuffs over him. That's your murderer. And as a kid, I remember turning the page, and you see this crazy wagon train coming from Nauvoo, Illinois. They're going to the Great Salt Lake. I thought I'd miss something. I'd go back and so forth. But Holmes solves it. That is the murderer. And then you get the whole business with the Mormons. And it's probably one of the reasons people think that's not one of John Watson's better told cases. What's the whole business with the Mormons? The murderer was involved with the Mormons, and almost the whole central part of the book is a flashback mm -hmm. explaining his involvement and how he comes to be the cabbie and he's bending over the trunk and so forth. There's a lot of American reference oh, in yes, these stories. Yes. And indeed, didn't one of the modern uh, Sherlockian scholars determine that Holmes, in fact, lived in this city for, was it a year or two? Mm-hmm. He, he had a Chicago period, which otherwise has been obscured. Where did Arnie say well, he lived? Erie Street? I can't remember. Something Erie Street. Erie right. Street, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there a reference in the canon to a period of Chicago residence for Holmes? He traveled yes. here, yes. Mm -hmm. he, that, that he had spent some time here. Uh, it's been believed that he practiced his thespian arts on the theaters here in the early 1890s, uh, possibly during his hiatus that he may have spent some time here. And we know that as he was preparing for his career against the German agents, he passed through Chicago in order to, to touch bases with the Irish community here. Why would that have been of a special importance, to touch base with the Irish community? Because as a, uh, he, he was being set up to be a counterintelligence agent uh, to attack the, uh, the, the German uh, spy network in uh, England. And the, in order, he was going to be feeding misinformation to the German network, to von Bork, and in order to get von Bork to believe him, he had to set up an alibi that he was, in fact, a dissident Irishman who hated the English thoroughly and that he had done certain evil things in America and, and was, was doing anything he could get to, to get back at John Bull. And while he was cultivating those anti-British Irish here in Chicago, he was somehow uh, performing on the stage in Chicago? Is that... Mm -hmm. Sure. Where's the evidence for that? And what was he doing on the stage? What roles was he playing? Was he, he a Shakespearean or what? Because really his last bow would be 1912, and he was on the stage here, aren't we pretty sure, in the 1890s, you said, Tom? Well, he, yeah, he yeah. passed through here earlier in the 1890s, uh, between 91 and 94. Well, how does he come to be an actor, and what sort of actor is he? Well, probably an excellent one. Throughout the canon, he is in disguise, and That's a master true. of disguise. Watson never recognizes him. In the final problem, he's an Italian priest. Uh, then all of a sudden, he becomes Holmes, and Watson goes, oh, my gosh. And, you know, he's continually fooling the man he lives with. So I think he would have been an excellent actor, plus his flair for drama in the cases. He always mm -hmm. loved to reveal the end result in the most dramatic manner possible, even causing Percy Phelps to faint practically as a result of his taste for drama and in the Measure and Stone and all. So I think, you know, in some ways he was probably a frustrated actor. Well, a couple times Watson, who certainly doesn't know all about Holmes's uh, activity on the boards, mentioned the stage lost a great right. actor. Mm -hmm when Holmes did not turn in that direction.
In the adventure of the empty house, Holmes appears in the disguise of an antiquarian bookseller. That must be especially appealing to you. Absolutely. For all we know, you might be Sherlock Holmes appearing in disguise at this moment. Mm -hmm. At a recent, recent cry bar Halloween party, Tom appeared as the bookshelf. <laughs> that was his disguise, and uh -huh. it was not successfully guessed. You know, there's one great figure in the Holmesian canon to which, of whom we've said virtually nothing, though there was some uh, brief reference to him earlier, namely that Napoleon of crime, Dr. Moriarty. Holmes seems to have felt that when pitted against Moriarty, he was testing his powers to the ultimate and that he was in great danger because he was up against a man of equal power. Yes, very true. That, that and, of course, in the final problem, we think at the time they have vanquished each other, and then it does turn out that Holmes did survive. When they wrestle on Reichenbach Falls, and both seem to fall into the... Correct. Uh, into the valley together. Yes, as Watson says, he saw the two footprints going up and none coming back. Well, who was Moriarty? We know that he was a professor of mathematics or something of the sort. Right, he like was. That, he? he wrote a paper in the binomial theorem on spherical asteroids. And I believe, and I've written some materials on his sex life, I believe he was into young boys, among other things. And also, in fact, he had to leave his teaching job very suddenly. And indications are, since he certainly would have been a brilliant scholar and a teacher, that it would have been extracurricular activities that might have caused his career to end abruptly there. What were his criminal exploits? What were his great criminal undertakings? Almost not exactly known. There were so many. It's like an octopus over the city of London. The tentacles are all over. The police refused to believe Holmes. Yeah. Yeah, he obviously uh, was like the great Jonathan Wilde a couple of a century earlier. He had thief takers. He had men working for them. They were uh, really loyal to him. He was ingenious. He was working 12 uh, avenues at the same time. He was kind of like all of organized crime in London. If you wanted anything done, it went through Moriarty. Hmm. And when the police would catch the minor people, they'd be layers below, and they never realized he was orchestrating it all. His second in command, if I remember, was Colonel Sebastian Moran. The second yes. most dangerous man in London. The second mm -hmm. most dangerous yeah. man in London. A great big game hunter and a card shark. Uh -huh. He used to support himself allegedly by by uh, cheating at cheating cards at, at card. the local card clubs, even uh -huh. though he was in uh, so Surrey. He was not only a criminal, he was a cad. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> but he's the one who fired upon uh, Holmes from above at uh, the Reichenbach Falls. Yeah. An interesting story about uh, the professor is that uh, a lot of Sherlockians saw a very definite connection, similarity between um, Moriarty and McCavity the cat appearing in Mr. Elliot's poems and later in the musical cast. Yes, McCavity the cat who wasn't there. Yes, McCavity. and uh, finally one Sherlockian uh, asked Elliot directly uh, because the, sh the scholarly world was saying, well, perhaps this was unconscious on Elliot's part, but he asked him, was this an unconscious act? He says, unconscious my foot, I stole directly, he said. Mm -hmm. Obviously Elliot uh, liked Sherlock Holmes and talked about it. He read Holmes. He was a knowledgeable Sherlockian, mm -hmm. very definitely. Well, there was an interesting paper a number of years back in the Baker Street Journal that proved that Moriarty is now J. Edgar Hoover. And I remember that was one of the first bits of Sherlockian research I read as a child, and that really captured my imagination. I don't know if that's worse for Moriarty or J. Edgar Hoover, really. Uh, I think birds Moriarty of a feather. <laughs> well, now, in um, the novel, The Seven... Is it a novel, or is it also, in fact, a factual report? 
the seven percent solution. That mm -hmm. would be a pastiche. Like Nicholas really, Meyer. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he does something different with Moriarty, doesn't he? Make make him into the former lover of Holmes's mother. Mother. mother mm -hmm. Yeah. And and their tutor. And uh, otherwise tutor. an innocent fellow, but Holmes has this paranoid yeah. right. uh, delusion about Moriarty because of having discovered Moriarty and his mother in flagrante delicto right. when he, Holmes, was a child. Right. M Moriarty was on the scene because he was the hired tutor for Mycroft and Sherlock. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there possibly something to that? Well, there's some argument that he might have been their tutor, whether he and the mother got, I think, might be stretching. As far as I know, Mrs. Holmes was certainly a lady of good repute, but... Uh, there are a lot of he people. He was French. Yeah. Well, uh -huh. I'm part French too, Tom. Let's not take this too far. But I certainly, I think a lot of there's pretty some fairly strong evidence that he could have been a tutor. Uh huh. I remember being impressed by Lawrence Olivier. I never would think of him as Moriarty. As Doctor. Yeah, yeah, he was a good Moriarty. Moriarty. As Professor Moriarty. Mm -hmm. um, we have some commercials coming yet once again, and we will turn to those in a moment. Uh, there are undoubtedly many Sherlockians out there. Uh, they may not all be as high in scholarly attainment in this area as the three of you are, but all the same, they have read the canon. They've read, what is it, six novel-length reports and... Four. Four novel-length reports and, four, yeah. and yes. 56 stories Excellent apart story. from those. Yes. And, of course, many others have turned their hand to writing about home. Many, many others. After yes. uh, Dr. Watson... Mm -hmm. uh, finished mm -hmm. his work. Uh, at any rate, with regard to all those who are listening and uh, are also interested in Holmes, if they want to join in our inquiry tonight, we're opening the lines right now on the early side, and the number is 591-7200, 591-7200. If there are some Sherlockian scholarly contributions that are available to us, we'd be happy to have them right now and get them on the air right now. So while we pause for those commercials, do by all means give us a ring at 591-7200, the area code 312, if you are Elvis Presley hidden away. Where's Elvis living these days? Well, he alternates, as he says, he spends summers with his dad, and then he's in Kalamazoo the rest of the well, time. Well, Kalamazoo is quite close by, within our, within our hearing range, of course. <laughs> 312, the area code, then 591-7200, if you are calling from Kalamazoo, whether you are or are not the illegitimate son of Sherlock Holmes who later distinguished himself as an American early rock and roll singer. 591-7200, mm -hmm. we return after this. We are joined tonight in our investigation of the real Sherlock Holmes by three uh, Holmesian, or as they say in their special application, Sherlockian scholars. They are Thomas Joyce, who otherwise is a bookseller in town, Eli Lebo, who otherwise is professor of English at Northeastern Illinois University, and Susan Diamond, who otherwise is a management consultant in town. And a number of other Sherlockian scholars apparently are joining us on the telephones and want to participate. And let's turn to the first of those. I believe this is an old friend, Norman Davis. Is that right? Good evening, Milt. Yes, it is. Well, Norman, it's very nice hearing from you. You've been on similar programs we've done in the past, of course. Yes, and I'm delighted to see you dealing with Mr. Holmes again. Uh, if I might, I wanted to uh, make one point about mm -hmm. the... Uh, Sherlockian societies, every society is totally independent and uh, does not need a warrant of any kind from the leader. The clearance is just a matter of convenience uh, so that we have a minimum duplication of names, and 
it does allow the publication of society reports in the Baker Street Journal. As far as Mr. Holmes in Chicago, the canonical reference is in his last bow. He tells Watson, I began my journey at Chicago. He had to establish uh, the character that would be believable, even under the most rigid of security checks, by Herr von Bork, who was the head of the German spy apparatus mm -hmm. in the UK. Now, in Chicago, uh, all we know is that he was here. And it occurred to me that uh, although Mr. Holmes himself is perhaps the most difficult of quarries, if he was here, he should have left some trace. And I spent some time in the county building looking up old city directories and records, and you can find the record that uh, he was here 1912 through 1913. He was posing as an out-of-work actor. There's no record, and this is one of the fascinating things. He, there's no record of his appearance in any production in Chicago, but if you look in the Lakeside Directory for the year 1913 at 116 West Erie Street, you will find Joseph Holmes, allegedly an actor, and the location, the timing of the report all work out to, uh, to prove this was accurate. And you were the man who ferreted out all of that information and indeed did the definitive article on this very matter. Well, it seems to have been definitive, uh, as uh, Susan can tell you, the uh, Criterion Bar Association, of which she is the head currently, holds a birthday party every January, and Mr. Holmes did attend one year and uh, did make a specific comment about West Erie Street having changed since he was here. Mr. Holmes attended. Then you, then yes. some of you have actually met Sherlock Holmes. Oh, very good. He was at Norman Norman his wife's wedding. In fact, he gave the bride away, which is, he does come occasionally to Michigan and stays at the Victorian Villa in Union City and occasionally assists on cases. The well, man who owns that particular bed and breakfast is a descendant of one of Mr. Holmes's clients. Well, does Holmes reveal his identity, or does he travel incognito? Uh, it depends on the situation. He revealed it there. He certainly came, with, and in fact, he was accompanied by Mrs. Norton, which was Irene Adler's married name, mm -hmm. and they had to leave abruptly because they got five orange pips laid on him by the David Dukes gang, so they left rather suddenly. Well, is as that I was, why? Yes, that's why, Norman, at the end of the evening when I was talking. So Irene him. Adler is still with us as well. Yes. I, I suppose he dispenses the same queen bee jelly on her, does he? I suppose, and I'm not sure they're always together. It may be getting together periodically, yeah. renewing acquaintances. Mr. Holmes has never revealed the exact secret of what he does, and uh, he never confirmed my suspicions, which is that he conducts chemical experiments, uh, chemical processes on the royal jelly. Mm -hmm. But he has said that uh, he shares this with his brother Mycroft Holmes, with Irene Adler, and with Dr. Watson. And I'm certainly not going to dispute Mr. Holmes. So they are, in a way, Methuselah's children. They, yeah. they are a special yeah. little cabal of, uh, of long-lived persons mm -hmm. maintained by the chemical genius rather than the uh, detective genius of Sherlock Holmes. Interesting yeah. you should make that reference, because Methuselah's children is one of the titles of a science fiction book. By Robert Heinlein. Right, yes, who indeed. is not, but uh, two other notable science fiction writers are and were 
Sherlockians, Paul Anderson and uh -huh. Isaac Asimov. Well, now, Norman, tell me, where have your Sherlockian researches led you in more recent years? I have not been that active in uh, the writing recently, Mel. I've been more just enjoying the societies and yeah. getting back to my own writing. Well, we enjoyed hearing from you. Thank you very much it's for calling. It's a pleasure. Um, our pleasure. Thank you. 591-7200, the number, yes. There is another wonderful uh, stunt that was planned relative to Holmes's appearances and disguises when I think Vincent Sterrett was, was uh, conspiring with Basil Rathbone, and Rathbone had never attended a meeting of the Baker Street Irregulars, and they were going to have him appear, and he was going to come dressed as Queen Victoria. Mm -hmm. Now, those days, there were no women present at the Baker Street Irregulars, but they felt that surely they could not refuse admittance to the Queen. And, and Rathbone was going to come in dressed as Queen Victoria, and then he would doff that disguise and appear as Basil Rathbone. Yeah. And that would have been fine enough, but that wasn't the end of it. He, of course, was then going to re re review that he was in disguise as Basil Rathbone. He would discard that and be Sherlock Holmes. And reveal that the actor Basil Rathbone really has been Sherlock Holmes all along? Exactly. Yeah. Would have been wonderful, but unfortunately uh, they weren't able to do it because the real Basil Rathbone uh, died in the meantime. Uh -huh. um, here's another caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, a question for your guest uh, that's always intrigued me. During Holmes's greatest success in London, uh, at the same time, there was possibly the world's greatest crime spree going on, which is never mentioned in the canon. Uh, Watson never brings up the question of Jack the Ripper, and I wonder what your guests had to say about this. There's been a number of books written about that, too. Well, surely Holmes would have been called in by Scotland Yard, or maybe, for all we know, by uh, the the home ministry. I think it's another tale the world is not yet ready for with ah. possible implications with the royal family that Watson was afraid to even allude to, which tells you how incredibly Well, that has since emerged. It has since emerged that a good candidate for Jack the Ripper may very well be. Which particular member was it of the royal family? Prince Eddie, although that has been, I think, pretty well disproved, but that was certainly one. And the royal physician, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a real Ripper scholar. Howard Quinn turned out a great book. I thought it was very good. Um, it was. Study yeah. in Terror, in which the Jack the Ripper part is really just the middle part of the book, and they turned it into a movie, which was superb. I thought a very good movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Do any of you put any credence to the thought that... Uh, Holmes himself was the Ripper, another side of him. Which oh, what an, out, what an outrageous suggestion. No. What an outrageous suggestion. Who, who actually first put that idea forward? Michael Dibden was yeah. a bit in an atrocity of a book that I hated, but no, I, I just find that unfathomable. Did Watson make any reference at all during any of this time to the events of the day as he was writing, that this was going on at all? I've never read any uh, anything close to that. Did he mention it at all that you know of? No. I don't, I don't think, think in the so. canon, no. no. In my uh, studies or, or research on Joe Bell, supposedly, Bell and a colleague put down the name of uh, Jack the Ripper in an envelope, mm -hmm. gave it to someone, and uh, I loved, uh, this, is a, this was research done by uh, Irving Wallace, and uh, thereafter, there were no more murders, and so forth. So Wallace's conclusion, whoever the name was that they had, this was the identity of Jack the Ripper. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, sir, for the call. Good night. Glad to have heard from you. Here, I believe, is a long-distance call. Where are you calling from? Racine, Wisconsin. <laughs> yes, oh, sir. I've heard of Racine. Yes. 
Hi, Paul. <laughs> Hello, Inspector Gregory. How are Randall you, Paul? Gang here. Now, everybody knows you except me. Who are you, sir? <laughs> you don't want to know, believe me. <laughs> no, Paul's a great guy. It's good to hear all of you. Uh, another that. former Sir Hugo. Yes, another Sir Hugo. And I've really been fascinated uh, by what you say. I'm glad you're properly uh, promoting Sherlock Holmes and keeping uh, his memory green, although uh, that really uh, is an understatement since Holmes gets more and more popular and really younger every year. It's that royal jelly, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Holmes found the elixir of life and is hale and hearty. Paul, what's the Wisconsin connection, the Sauk City connection? Uh, that's August Derleth. You were talking of pastiches uh, before, uh, writings uh, in the same vein uh, as uh, those of the Watsonian uh, uh, canon. And August Derleth... Uh, was a Wisconsin, or was a Wisconsin uh, writer. He lived from 1909 to 1971. Uh, followed in the uh, Watsonian vein after uh, Watson ceased to uh, write in 1927. He wrote to uh, the agent uh, Doyle and asked if he could uh, uh, continue, and uh, Doyle uh, presumably answered in the affirmative, and uh, it is recognized that with one exception, Vincent Sterrett's The Unique Hamlet in 1920, the uh, Solar Ponds uh, stories are the most faithful uh, uh, representations uh, ever written uh, subsequent to Watson. Say, by the way, uh, you all refer to Arthur Conan Doyle as the agent, the literary agent. Now, why does the world generally understand these works to be novels written by Arthur, novels and short stories written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle rather than uh, true accounts written by Dr. Watson? Well, Doyle was an entrepreneur, and uh, you know, I have, hate to say it, but he took... Uh, uh, liberal advantage of uh, the good Dr. Uh, Watson and capitalize on uh, Watson's uh, writings. And I think Watson preferred some anonymity on it, too. He really did not want all the attention, so I think it was a, probably worked out as a mutually satisfactory mm -hmm. compromise. He, he was getting the money, but he didn't want the notoriety. And I think Very enjoyable. Uh, and uh, glad to have heard from you. Good night for now. 591-7200 is our number. We pause once again for a quick round of commercials, and then back to the phones. Uh, the lines are mostly taken, but I see one or two are available at the moment. 591-7200. As we search for yet other Sherlockian scholars, or for mere listeners who have some special interest in these matters and want to pose a question. That, of course, is also permissible. We'll return right after this. And on April 1st, we are doing a special program in which we're disclosing the nature of the real Sherlock Holmes, who I have discovered, to my amazement, but uh, to my deep satisfaction, I, I guess, who still lives. At what age do we calculate? 140. 140. 140. That's just wonderful. 591-7200 is the number as we return to Susan Diamond, to Eli Lebo, 
and to James Joyce and back to the telephones. <laughs> uh, James Joyce. You moved. Uh, to Thomas Joyce. But aren't you the illegitimate son of James yeah, Joyce? Right. <laughs> the illegitimate son of yeah. James Joyce, right. Uh, 591-7200, and you are on the air. Good evening. Yes, I was wondering if any of your guests were familiar with the uh, episode of the Star Trek The Next Generation in which Professor Moriarty appears, and if they were, how they thought he was portrayed or if he was portrayed correctly. The two episodes. Oh, two? Okay. There was a sequel to that where he reappeared. And uh, I, thought it, I thought it was extremely well done that they placed uh, the, the, the character of Professor Moriarty was quite consistent with the character as he would be, not as he was in, in the 1890s, but as he would appear uh, in another place in another time, consistent with his character and his uh, mental capability. Well, what's he doing on the Starship Enterprise? Well, in the, well, your guests can probably tell you better than I can. You go ahead. Well, um, Data, who is one of the characters on Star Trek, is a android with a oh, computer yes. brain. We all know him, yeah. Right, and he is a, uh, he would fit very well in, in, in with your group tonight because he's a Holmes expert. <laughs> yeah, right. And he'll go, th he would compete with the computer, the computer or with other members of Star Trek uh, to solve mysteries, and no one could stand up to him because he would just, he was so quick. And so they asked the computer to create someone equal to data and mm -hmm. the computer became created Moriarty who had control of the computer which he then took control of uh, the Enterprise and wanted to exit the holodeck and you know and become a real person uh-huh and but, do they and do they call Holmes in to contain and control Moriarty or what no and the episode that I saw they uh, called Captain Picard came in and uh -huh and convinced him that he could not, but he would exist in the memory banks of the computer forever. So Holmes does not appear in No, in not in the, the episode that I saw. I don't know if he well, appeared in the Data, Data was impersonating Holmes. Right. He was playing the character in a role-playing game on the holodeck. Right, correct. But I thought it was fascinating that, that even in, you know, they project Holmes and all the characters with Holmes into the future. I thought that was fascinating that uh, he that uh, this character is, is so, such mm -hmm. an interesting yeah. person that he's carried on even into the future. Well, evil is always of great fascination, and great evil is of greater fascination. Yeah. And Moriarty is such a, a, a compelling character right. that though he appeared in, I think, what, two or three, only two or three of the two and a quarter. cases, uh, he's, he's, he has a permanent indelible image in people's minds. Yeah. Right. Sir, thank you for the call. You're welcome. Glad to have heard from you. And here is another. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, good evening. I would like to first to congratulate and thank your expert guests for bringing the home story to the public tonight and say that I also had the pleasure of spending a weekend at the Victorian Villa where I personally met uh, Mr. Holmes as well. But my two short questions to your panel there uh, is knowing all three of them, if they might... Uh, briefly discuss and compare the various portrayers of Sherlock Holmes oh, in films, TV, and radio. And secondly, particularly to Tom Joyce, that since there appears there always be new material coming out, what about the market value of collecting Sherlockiana? Shall I go with that one? Uh, Whatever. One of the beautiful parts about the, the continuing number of devotees and the and the increase in uh, activity following the
publication of Nicholas Meyer's 7% solution is that there are a lot more people that are interested. Uh, there's also with the uh, Granada TV series with the Jeremy Brett portrayal, uh, there, there are even a wider audience that's drawn in and you have people that are, some of them don't know uh, Holmes and Watson through the publications, but they only know them through the TV productions or the film productions. But uh, certainly in recent times, some of the, the prices for the original editions mm. have just, just soared enormously. Uh, recently I saw one of, the, one of the sad things that happened, I guess sad one way, good for collectors, is that the, when the Hound of the Baskervilles was published, the, they made a promotional gimmick of taking individual sheets of the manuscript and passing it out so that bookstores could display it in their uh, display windows. And so that the manuscript mostly is broken up, and uh, but now you can buy an individual page if you're lucky enough to stumble on it, and if you're lucky enough to have something like twenty thousand dollars. Hmm. Sir, are you a Sherlockian scholar as well? I uh, try to be. Yes, they all know who I am. Well, you can give us your name. Uh, Jack Levitt. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about the various portrayers of Holmes in you know TV when you mentioned uh, Jeremy Brett and of course we know about Rathbone I'm just wondering what their opinions are of these various portrayers I would add uh, to that list I'm, I'm, I suppose there have been dozens of Holmeses yeah. in film and yeah. uh, in theater performance of course uh, that's uh, an old American actor named Gillette. William Gillette. William Gillette. 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 Gillette.
Tom Joyce has some unspecified but undoubtedly close relationship to James Joyce, as we... Uh, he's my brother. Your brother. And he still lives, too, doesn't he? Very well. But, but in uh, hidden retirement. Eli Lebo is professor of English at Northeastern Illinois University. Uh, and Susan Diamond is a management consultant in town. Tom Joyce, I should have said, uh, is one of the leading antiquarian booksellers in town. The name of your shop is simply... Uh, Joyce and Company. Joyce and Company. Uh, 591-7200, the number, you are on the air. Good evening. Hello, are you there? Hello? Yes, sir. Mr. Rosenberg. Sir. Dr. Rosenberg, I would be interested, I just have two quick, uh, two quick questions. Uh, you, as a psychologist, I would be interested in seeing or hearing uh, what your quick uh, psychological profile would be on Sherlock Holmes, if you were to study the man, mm -hmm. what you would think of him, and also... Uh, how can I get further information on uh, further study on Sherlock Holmes and that organization? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't presume to give a psychological profile of Holmes. Uh, he is, of course, a genius. And genius is sort of off the continuum of ordinary human types and even of ordinary human personality. But uh, let me ask the three scholars who are with us. Don't you think, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Doctor, uh, don't you think that he was kind of an egotist and a little bit of a paranoiac? Well, uh, I'm about to ask. Has there been any scholarship in the Sherlockian world on Holmes's character, on uh, his formation through childhood experience and what have you? What do we have on that? Surely well, there must have been. There's been so many subjects that yeah. are, they're, it's hard to think of one that hasn't been covered in the Baker Street Journal or, some, or the Sherlock Holmes Society. You, you don't have any psychiatric members of the, uh, of the Sherlockian organizations who've attempted to do a study of his personality at a distance. Well, we know, according to Nicholas Meyer, he was treated by Sigmund Freud. Actually, for his uh, that addiction. Was a, uh, addiction. Mm. For, for his the cocaine addiction, addiction yeah. Um, we have nothing immediately available. I think we stand in some awe of the man, and you don't, <laughs> you don't really do a personality diagnosis or personality profile on someone who's so clearly superior to the ordinary run of human beings. Of course. <laughs> uh, as for the societies and how one enters them. Pardon me? Well, the Criterion Bar Association, we welcome anyone to our meetings, regardless of gender. And anyone interested in information can call me at 708-451-0287 or our treasurer, Bill Sawish, at 708-972-0635. To become a member, you need to attend three meetings and do something for the group, which can be write a quiz or help in a program. And we're always delighted to see okay, new members. Okay, that's 451-0287? Yes. Okay. We thank you, sir, for the call. Thank you. Five nine one seven two zero zero. You are on the air. Good evening. Are you there? Am I here? I. That's for you to tell us. Are you in <laughs> okay, fact I there, didn't or, realize you're talking to me. or are you my, not my, there? My question is: Is have any of you encountered the CD-ROM version mm -hmm. of interactive Holmes stories? Yes, I have done one of them, and I didn't find it to, that it was a good Canadian Sherlockian, a friend of mine, Doug Elliott, and we really didn't find that applying the Sherlockian process, at least on this one, worked very well for us, that it was, it just was, it didn't seem to work very well in terms of you've ended up having to look at all the clues and you still weren't sure where you were, and I think Doug and I are fairly competent, so I, 
we decided with our, to keep our own egos happy that the fault was not in us. <laughs> are, are, are they, did they give a pretty good characterization in there? Or I, I have, I, I've just seen that there is such a thing. I haven't really... Not a lot of characterization. Some. It's, it's kind of cute, the novelty, but it was solving it as a mystery. I didn't find it too satisfying. Thank you, sir, for the call, and uh, we'll dash on to another on 5917200. Good evening. You are on the air. Yes, I was just wondering if there were any descendants of author Conan Doyle, like, still living. Of author Conan Doyle, the literary agent. Yes. His daughter is still living. Yeah. Dame Jean Conan Doyle. She's in England. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. His son wrote, um, did he write additional Sherlockian or... Some of the, the untold cases with... Uh, was done by Adrian Doyle, was that his name? Yes, with yeah. John Dixon Carr. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much. But for that matter, what do we know about the uh, the full line of progeny, the full line of descent from Sherlock himself? We've established that uh, we, we've talked about at least two of his offspring. Sherlock or Doyle? Uh, Sherlock. Okay. Uh, that is to say, Nero Wolfe, and you yeah. have conjectured at least, I gather, that. Yeah, I feel I've proven it, and that does, in fact, in some recent correspondence I intercepted, the master did discuss his granddaughter. He was very unhappy that she was seen with Michael Jackson recently. He wrote to Elvis at great length about this. He was upset. Are there yet other offspring who There's have been There's a recent traced? publication that covers Shelley Holmes, the great-granddaughter of Sherlock Holmes, uh -huh. and it's a... Uh, it's, it's a uh, uh, a novelized version, but it, in the front of it, there at least I think it's novelized because. But if you believe the uh, the, the breakdown, the family genealogy that's in the first two pages of the book, uh, there's a direct link by the genealogy. Mm -hmm. But I don't think he was that busy. No. He had an occasional interest in the kinds of activity that lead to generation, but basically his. Commitment lay elsewhere, I guess. Right, and well, Nero did not carry on, so the line stopped there with Nero Wolf. Yeah. he's not. And Elvis only had the one child. Mm -hmm. Well, Sherlock did feel that, that uh, emotional complications got in the way of the logical resolution of uh, dealing with problems. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think for the most part he tried to avoid that as much as possible, although he did have a very good uh, fondness in his heart for Mrs. Hudson. Mrs. Hudson, the housekeeper. The housekeeper. Mm -hmm. Really? She she was much older than than Holmes himself, was she not? That's not clear. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. not clear. Uh -huh. She 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 may appear in the final case, his last bow, where she was there's a woman who appears to behave like a housekeeper in von Bork's uh, home, but mm -hmm. she was planted there by Holmes and he calls her Martha. He doesn't call her Mrs. Hudson. But that's the basis for believing that her name is Martha Hudson rather than just Mrs. Hudson. Yeah. Um, we thank that caller and uh, go to another. Hello, you're on the air. Oh, good evening. Yes, sir. Something that's been bothering me for many years, and I've looked it up in many dictionaries, is the term gasogene. Gasogene. Hmm. Is it a seltzer bottle? Somewhat like a seltzer bottle, yes. Mm -hmm. It looks like one. It looks like one, but how's it? And uh, the the uh, handle, the, it's char it has a charge of gas in it, mm -hmm. very much like the two cents plane in New York, the seltzer. Okay, mm -hmm. it works. It works like Alka Seltzer. There's yeah. a there's a, a like a calcium tablet, and from the upper chamber, built like a double boiler. You, the water, 
uh, is admitted in from the top and it falls on this calcium tablet or something and that causes it to fizz and then the, it for, the uh, gas forces it out the top and into your glass. Now where does this occur in the Holmesian Cannon? It's in the rooms at 221B Baker Street. Oh, they just have it available and they often use the gas gene and a tantalus, with, yeah. With the whiskey, yes. Yes, I was able, any, completely unable to find that in Webster's or the Oxford. You need to check it with the, uh, the uh, British uh, dictionary. Well, the Oxford is British. There are several, uh, well, in magazines like Baker Street Journal and others, they will occasionally show illustrations, of, not well, ads from magazines in the 19th century, and they show pictures of gazogenes. Oh, really? Yeah, occasionally. Oh, I mm -hmm. thought it was an invention of... Uh, oh, no, 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 no. Or, or the Encyclopedia Sherlockiana by Jack Tracy. Right. Right. In fact, that uh, literary agent, uh, Doyle, uh, got a gazogene as a gift on his wedding. Oh, really? To, to his first wife, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm curious, since you were mentioning Nero Wolfe just recently, and while I subscribe to the view that Nero Wolfe was Sherlock Holmes' son, I've also thought that Archie Goodwin was Nero Wolfe's son. Hmm. I think there has been some speculation uh, in that direction. Well, he just came out of nowhere in a way. There are several different stories as to his origins. Mm hmm And then there he is. And they, they have a father-son relationship, obviously. I don't know. Would any of you people care to... Give an opinion on that? So much is hidden from us. There's so much uh, that is not revealed and that you have to ferret out uh, if you are of a truly suspicious nature. I was going to say, if they have a father-son relation, it's one, one of those uh, interesting ones where the father is always snapping at the son. Yeah, and somehow, I don't know, Archie doesn't seem in to be a lineal descendant through the Sherlock and Mycroft, the personality and all. There's a close relationship, but I think it would be more like an adopted son you bicker with than an actual child. Well, sir, we thank you for the call. You're very welcome. Very glad to have heard from you, and on to another good evening. Hello, hello. Are you there? Apparently not. This would be a good time to pause for some commercials, and once again, there are a number of call, uh, rather a number of lines available, uh, ready for additional calls on 591-7200, 591-7200. We are now at a crucial moment. Uh, as Prospero says at the end of The Tempest, our revels now are ended. Uh, we now come, we now abandon the assumption which, on which our whole program was structured for the last hour and a half. This is, of course, April Fool's Day. And in a way, uh, or April the 1st, this is not foolish, but it is fanciful. In a way, this fancy is one which you and, the mem and your colleagues, the members of the various, uh, the various Sherlockian societies, uh, a fancy which you entertain all year long, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 that Holmes it's a is real, that he still lives, and, and so on and so it's on. It's a wonderful conceit, uh, perhaps expressed best by... Uh, the former Chicago Tribune writer Vincent Sterrett yeah. in his uh, poem 221B who said uh, only those things the heart believes are true. What is the deep appeal of the Holmes stories, would you think? Uh, Eli, you're a professor of English. Um, you can give us some lit, some lit crit interpretation of it all. Why does it still speak to us and so engage uh, the interest and the pleasurable response 
of millions around the world, and so engage them that many of them are called upon to organize the kinds of groups that you belong to and to play this wonderful game based upon the yeah. uh, the premise that Holmes lives in. That Holmes well, I, I think the uh, appeal to the Victorians was very much like the appeal to ours today. Doyle was living at a time, in my opinion, when modernity was catching up to England. Things were going very fast. Uh, you get people like Conrad saying the world is knit and it is undone. Uh, and Holmes and Watson are settled in, that, in those rooms at 221B Baker Street. The appeal is to the middle class and upper middle classes at the time, or at least it's about them. But Doyle's original readers, I think, were the man of the street. And in many ways, I think Doyle was a man of the street. Somebody has said it wasn't Doyle's genius. That was the success of the stories, but the readers made the stories, and I think that's partly true. But in capturing that, uh, he appeals to a sense of justice. He appeals to fairness in everybody, and I think this was very important. I think particularly today when you think of our political leaders and sports heroes who do everything from uh, like the Watergate affair, people who are on dope, people who lie to the press and to the American public and so forth. Then you get uh, in Sherlock Holmes a man who people could really respect and trust. You're saying he's an, he's an agent of sort of absolute moral purity, but surely lots of other people are so represented in the imaginative literature available to him. And actually, of course, Holmes was a cocaine user. That was another thing he and Elvis had in common. But I think it's that the characters are so incredibly interesting and fascinating. You really want to know them. And the depth and how the characterization was built up through the writings, I think, is what really... And it is both interesting, and there is a sense of, as he always says, comfort and stability yeah. there. But. That's a point that's made... Uh, by some, P.D. James, for example, makes that point about the classic English mystery novel, that you get a murder, which is a disruption of social regularity, and then the agencies of society, oh, yes. including, to be sure, the investigator from Scotland Yard and uh, the local constabulary, uh, they all kind of come in, and in a weekend at that country estate, they sort things out and discover who the murderer was, whether it was the butler or somebody else, and once again, placidity, order, and predictable, trustworthy, steadfastness return to the scene. And that is deeply reassuring. There's uh, a cathartic release of the dread of true injury in the fact of the murder, and then there is the reassurance of yeah. society bringing it all in order again. And, of course, P.D. James says that's how Agatha Christie works, that's how all of the classic novels work, but that isn't what the mystery novel is now. Our own are given to a great deal of gore and to a far more um, troubled view of the human prospect than is the case in the classic mystery stories. And I suppose her analysis of the classic mystery novels of Agatha Christie would apply really also even to the Holmesian Gap. Well, yes and no. Some of them, I think, there is this great satisfaction. The crime is solved and the ends are tidied up. But and these were the ones that always troubled me even as a child, like the Five Orange Pips, which is not really successfully resolved. And John Openshaw comes to Holmes for help, dies shortly after leaving Holmes in the Valley of Fear, which Tom alluded to. 
Holmes is not able to save Douglas. So I think that is a very contemporary vein that in so several some, of the cases, there is not a satisfying so, ending. So, in that so some case. of them are darker. Is what yes, very definitely. Yeah. Auden has a very nice essay called The Guilty Vicarage, which he sort of, like, he plays Aristotle. He, he, yeah. he tells you exactly what's been going on in the English cozy novel and talks about the fact that you have... Uh, everybody in a state of grace until you have a murder, and then you have one person who is no longer in that state of grace. You want to see this person punished and so forth. But along those lines, I had a quote, I got it today. Uh, Orden describes, uh, first I ought to say that Anthony Burgess wrote a very nice uh, article in New York Times Review, maybe, what, a year or two ago, in which he observed that Conan Doyle is cunning and knows exactly what he's at, as he says. The fact that we can read the stories again and again is a tribute to his literary skill. It's as though Watson's prose is a, is a device of anesthesia. And along those lines, Auden specifically describes the anesthe anesthetic effect of uh, Watson's narratives as, quote, an addiction deriving from the intensity of the craving, which I think is a very nice quote. And it's mm -hmm. very nice, yeah. By the way, um, we, had, we did not earlier tonight talk about your book of a few years ago, Eli. Dr. Joe Bell, the model it's for cheaper Sherwood. by the dozen, I'll, I'll tell you that. How do you mean? By 12, it's a lot cheaper than buying one. I see. But I do want to talk about that now, because to give the full title, Dr. Joe Bell, the model for Sherlock Holmes. This is serious Holmesian, or rather, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, or uh, Doylean research, one might say. Yeah. What did you uncover about the relation between this real figure Dr. Joe Bell, who was a physician in Edinburgh, is that right? Mm -hmm. He was a surgeon and a teacher. And the inspiration? It was the method that was the inspiration. What uh, was the contact between Doyle and He was Bell? his teacher. Uh, Do Bell was Doyle's teacher. Yeah, well, it should be remembered. Taught him clinical surgery. Should and be... Doyle then became his dresser or his assistant. Yeah. Doyle was, of course, a physician. Oh, yes. Yes, he practiced uh, seven, eight years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then gave it up. Mm -hmm. So become a writer full time. Where's the evidence of some kind of connection of inspiration between the one man and the other? Well, first, Doyle says, uh, I decided to try something new. I would turn my hand to detective fiction, but I didn't want to try the old... Try. Then I remembered my old mentor, Joe Bell, and his methods. And, of course, the method was the uh, more or less like the... Well, I'll give you one episode. A patient comes into the outpatient clinic, and Doyle has the students look at him ask him what's wrong with him after having the man walk around, talk, speak, and so forth. And like Watson, they are all blank and amazed. And then Doyle says, gentlemen, he is... Doyle re says or Bell oh, excuse says? Excuse me. Yeah, I'll keep doing that. Bell. Bell says, gentlemen, if you notice carefully, <clears throat> he has been recently discharged from the Army. He played a wind instrument in the band. He has elephantiasis and so forth. And then he proves you will notice the legs. It's elephantiasis. And where do you get elephantiasis? He said the man was from Barbados, and that's where he had been and so forth, and he talks about uh, what he's wearing to show the respect and so on. But Bell's method was very much like uh, Sherlock Holmes. How did Bell figure out that the man played the flute? A wind instrument. A wind instrument. From the uh, cheeks. Okay. By the way, that was his one big mistake. He asked them, everything was true. But one of the things he said, by the way, in that case, which is very interesting, he said that the man was a, uh, that he had been in the army, and that he thought he had left the army, and the man said no. No, I think the man said he'd never been in the army. That's what it was. He'd never been in the army, which really surprised uh, Bell. He had the man taken to another room, stripped, and under his breast was a tattooed D, which they put on deserters. But when he got the full story from the man, the one thing that was wrong 
He played the bass drum. He did not play a wind instrument. Mm -hmm. But everything else was right. Mm -hmm. Our number is 5917200, and we've now tilted in another direction. Namely, we're now looking, uh, in realistic terms, at the achievement of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in his elaboration of the great uh, Sherlockian story. And we've abandoned the assumption which guided our first hour and a half that uh, it was actually Watson who did write the stuff and he wrote them all accurately as a direct record of the doings of his friend Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was merely a literary agent. Uh, actually, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was not all that fond of this character and all that fond of this body of his work, was he? No, not at all. No. Not at all. He, he killed him off in order to get rid of him. He called him uh, that monstrous growth. Mm -hmm. And only under great duress, uh, basically by pleading from his mother, did he actually bring him back. Pleading by his mother, but also great clamor from the public. Yes. And great financial remuneration for bringing him back, too. Yeah. Every That's time right. he told the publishers he wanted to stop, he got more money. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. He did a good deal of other writing, uh, of very different medieval romances and things of that sort, oh, yeah. isn't that right? Historical novels, also the Professor Challenger science fiction novels. What are they like? I don't know those at all. They're not bad. They're, I don't enjoy them as much as the canon, but it's somewhat... Professor Challenger is a very loud, bombastic scientific type with rather outrageous theories that are always proved true as when the world is covered by a poisonous belt of ether and emerges from it. And there's a journalist, John J. Malone, who's like the Watson type. The last Challenger novel is pretty awful, mm -hmm. where he gets into spiritualism, which Doyle was into. And I, I personally found it rather unreadable, but... Yeah, in that last novel, he has a very scientific gentleman, uh, Professor Challenger, switch over or swing over to spiritualism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's popularly believed that Doyle was knighted because of the Sherlock Holmes stories, but that's not true. He actually was knighted because of his work uh, in South Africa during the yeah. Boer War to clean it up, to work in the hospitals to get them to clean up and save the lives of the soldiers. And then after the Boer War, he wrote a history of the Boer War, which at least presented uh, the, 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 the crown side of things, and, and uh, they appreciated it so much that that's why they gave him the knighthood. I didn't know that business about uh, his work in South Africa. It sounds like oh, he yeah. was much influenced by Joseph Lister and was equally mm -hmm. involved in the great campaign to Lister achieve antisepsis. Doyle would have seen Lister when he was at the University of Edinburgh. Is that so? Mm -hmm. Lister was there. You see what fine powers of deduction I've got. Yeah, Just from got that, it. I was able mm -hmm. to locate a Lister-Doyle I guess there's a connection. Along those lines, uh, Doyle, that is at least the Professor Challenger business, uh, a movie that was made was The Lost World, which is a Professor Challenger. Mm -hmm. This was starred, who, Wallace Berry and Louis Stone. came out in 1925. And then there was a remake later. Yeah, a later one. But one of the things that happened in 1923, when Doyle went to a, uh, the American Magicians Association meeting with Harry Houdini, lo and behold, Doyle said he wanted to put on a little magic show. He was having problems with Houdini at the time. And he didn't want to be questioned by the press or anybody else later. They were kind of amazed, but they let him do it. And what he showed were clips from the Lost World, which was the first real example of special effects. And the magicians were startled. They did not know what was going on. Mm -hmm. But uh, he played their own game. Mm -hmm. Same gentleman, by the way, who did the special effects, I learned, 
is the gentleman who did the special effects for King Kong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Doyle sounds as if he had uh, a good deal of fun in his life. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. He was a race car driver. Was he, he beat the French billiard champion. He introduced skiing almost to Switzerland. This was an amazing oh, man. Oh, wonderful. Mm -hmm. Oh, wonderful. How, um, what, what are his dates, actually? Born when, died when? 59, and he died 1930. Mm -hmm. 1859, he was born. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Our number is 591-7200, and we will return to the phones in just a moment. Some lines are available again. 591-7200, you are on the air. Good evening. Hi, how are you? Fine, sir. Okay, my question is, <clears throat> I'm trying to figure out where are your people are getting all these marriages for Dr. Watson? Now, I remember Mary Morstan was one of his wives from the sign of four, and then rumor has it that Viola Hunter was another one from, she came from the solitary cyclist. But I can't remember any other marriages that he had. I don't think, Violet Hunter, I don't think was, I would argue, was not one of the wives. But in the later cases, and I think, Neiline Thomas, illustrious client, there's some references to a wife who was obviously not supportive of the cases in the way Mary Morstan was. Well, Mary, Mary Morstan always let him go, let Watson go with Holmes in the cases. And the later wife was not. And there's some argue, W.S. Baringold argued for, I think it was three wives, by the way he dated the chronology in the cases. I'm not sure I'd subscribe to that, but I think clearly at least two, because Watson leaves Holmes to be married, Morstan dies, he comes back, he leaves again, and the second wife is less favorable on his participation. talking about uh, multiple marriages for this guy, and I can't recall... Serial marriages. Yes, he's not a bigamist or a polygamist. No, I didn't say a bigamist. I just said that you're talking about a number of marriages, and the only two that I can think of would be, well, Mary Morrison for one, definitely, and maybe Viola Hunter. There was some doubt about that one, too. Well, if you, if you, and I'm trying to remember, it's in the case book. It's the second or third last case where it opens, and Holmes talks about his friend Watson is doing the only unself. Uh, the only selfish yeah. thing he ever did, which was to go and take himself a wife. <laughs> yep, that's right, yep. And that's pretty much, that's it, way after the Mary Marston uh, episode. There's uh, also uh, the... Oh, yeah, oh, And after the allusions to her death in the empty house. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. also the incident of uh, his Watson having a knowledge of women on three continents. Uh, well, that, that obviously would involve the Indian continent, where he served in the Army. It yeah. would involve England, because he certainly had Mary Morstan, and who knows who else. But the speculation has also been that he spent time in San Francisco and married an American. My deduction is that this caller is uh, someone who smoked for many years. Is that right, sir? I have what? You smoked <laughs> for many years. Smoked for many years? Yeah, is that true? Well, yes. Why? Yeah. Just my deduction. How did I know that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just gave it up uh, a year ago. Well, well, well. <laughs> this is Holmesian method directly what, what, applied. What, what has it rubs that... off, let me tell you. Well, <laughs> I have another question about uh, you. You've mentioned the. Uh, but you asked me how I you asked me how I knew that, aren't you? I'm very curious to know uh, about that. Let me see if any of the Holmesians around the table know how I knew that. Uh -huh. It's from the intake of the breath. Yes. From the heavy breathing that you're doing. I'm glad you stopped. 
<laughs> stop smoking, that is, not stop breathing. Uh, we have to move on, sir, right here. Thank you very much for the call. 5917200 is the number. There are a number of lines available if you've been trying to reach us and have not succeeded. Do, by all means, try again quickly on 5917200. Good evening. Good evening, Dr. Rosenberg. Yes, sir. And good evening to all of your panelists tonight. Um, I called up because I have one or two little tidbits of information to add to some of your previous discussions. And also, I have two things I'd like to just throw out and then have your panelists comment on. Uh, as far as the Star Trek episodes go, Sherlock Holmes as a character with Data only showed up in the first one because the Doyle estate objected to it which is why in the second episode, Moriarty was there by himself. Oh, really? Um, you mean it, there was threatened litigation on this matter, or what? Uh, not litigation per se. It's just that the descendants of Doyle happened to have seen the episode or something like that, and they got a hold of Paramount and raised the objection mm -hmm. that they weren't particularly pleased with the way uh, Holmes himself was portrayed they didn't feel that an android was the proper character to portray an immortal. Although being immortal basically as an android, I think, was more perfect than having a human do it. But um, a little ironic, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, the other is with the CD-ROM versions of the Sherlock Holmes software, uh, the company who was producing those was using as a selling point to their dealers that they were the only company to actually go to the estate and get permission to produce something in the Sherlock Holmes realm. Whether this is actually factual or not, I really don't know. But they were using it as a selling point to their dealers. Um, and some of the things where you can go out and you can buy a text CD-ROM with a complete canon on it, I do know that these are not uh, done with the permission of the estate. Mm -hmm. Whether the people assume automatically that they're in the public domain or not, I have no idea. But um, after talking to one or two of those companies, I do know they haven't done it with permission. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to throw that in there and add that those little tidbits to the uh, discussion. Um, the other is you were asking the panelists about the age of Sherlock Holmes, and it just kind of flashed through my head that how can you put an age on an immortal? Well, it did flash through your head. I imagine by now it's flashed out on the other side. <laughs> um, that's just wordplay. Uh, if you play the game that uh, he really existed and, and want to keep him alive, then we've got an age. Well, we since know. We know since we know his birthday. We know his birthday. We? We, we know he was uh, 60 years old in 1914. Well, true, but the character himself is immortal. All right. True, but that's uh, e that's either profound or uh, well, immortal means or, or banal. Yeah, yeah. immortal say. means that he may not end, but he had a beginning, as opposed to being eternal. Well, true, but I'm, this is according to Starrett's two twenty one B when he says so can never die. Yeah. Um, however, um, all right. The two questions I'd just like to throw out, and then I'll just let the panelists go at it, and I'll hang up and let you go. Well, we're following your agenda so far. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, Dr. Lebo, you brought up the point about Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, spiritualism in that. And I was wondering if you were going to bring up anything about uh, the relationships between Doyle and Houdini and spiritualism. I could go on all night, but I won't. Um, 
Well, Houdini wanted to believe, first of all, Doyle was the great champion of spiritualism of the late 19th and early 20th century. And it's not true that he became a spiritualist when his son Kingsley died in World War I. He became a spiritualist long before that. And Houdini wanted to believe once his mother died, but then he saw too many what he called charlatans, and he became the great debunker. But they had quite a friendship going, which eventually turned into a kind of bitter stalemate. But uh, Over this issue? Over the issue of, no. yes, of uh, spiritualism. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, we will thank the caller and take care of a few more. 591-7200, the number. Good evening. You are on the air. Yes, I'm wondering if your guests know anything about the fact that Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle is now the prime suspect having perpetrated the hoax of the Piltdown Man, having been the neighbor of uh, it Dawson, I believe. Really, man, that's quite interesting. That's a famous hoax for quite a number of years. It's the able Fool's joke, to be certain. Yes, indeed. And the Piltdown Man for quite a while was taken to be a legitimate... Uh, pay, uh, uh, a legitimate uh, find and uh, influenced uh, theories about the origin and descent of man later proved to have been a total fraud. Absolutely. But I've never heard that Doyle. Oh, yeah. Doyle, yes. Mm -hmm. oh, I always read about it in a book by uh, James Trayfall, Thousand and One Things Everyone Should Know About uh -huh. Science. He Doug mentions in the book. Doug Elliott wrote an excellent monograph on that that was published through the bootmakers of Toronto. He's quite a very good Doylean as well as a Sherlockian, and you might want to contact the bootmakers and get a copy of it if you're interested in it. Well, what credence do you put in that hypothesis? I think Doyle was fooled in it. Doyle also saw glued fairies on twigs and believed they were real from photographs. Well, but, he was. But there was a, there was a theory. It was in the paper. Yeah, that uh, somebody had the theory that Doyle really planted the... Was other. one of the hoaxers rather yeah. than... And I don't... No, one no of the I hoax. think he was no, hoax. Well, but then, then, Susan, how would you explain that one of the bones they found uh, had some filing on it, and the part that was filed, uh, clearly filed by some metallic object, which would have preceded the, that, mm -hmm. that yeah. possibility, yeah. was on a part of the bone called the upper condyle. There the condyle. Oh. There no, no, go. serious, that's true. Yeah. The, the condyle, Conan Doyle. There's the clue. <laughs> All right, Tom. Mean, is it seriously proposed that he left his signature in that? Yes. In that yes. Yes. That was, that was yeah. part of the theory. The, the find was uh, like 15 or 20 miles from his home in Crowborough. Uh huh. And the question is, he was he had done Professor Challenger, who who went off to explore lost worlds. Yeah. And in the frontispiece of the book, there's a portrait of Professor Challenger and his buddies. And Doyle sat for the photograph as Professor Challenger, wearing a huge beard to disguise himself. Well, he obviously had a lot of fun in his lifetime. Are you suggesting that, are you in fact sort of half persuaded that he may have been involved in yes. in, in making the Piltdown hoax? Yes. Yeah. Ella, you agree? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I really don't. It fits in with the kind of character he was. He I would done. say that's true. He that's thought the, true. the scientists didn't believe in spiritualism, and he did. So in order to prove to the scientists that they weren't so mm -hmm. sharp and so smart and didn't know everything, he plans yeah. a hoax. Would go along with that business yeah. at the magician's conference, yeah. What did they throw together to make the Piltdown Man? Some of it was uh, ape uh, skeletal material, I was think it so, not? yeah. And uh, something... Uh, a sort of a synthesis or a melange of three or four different yeah. animals. Mm -hmm. Right. 
pieces of animals that, uh, and, and, and uh, cloth that's something that, that could only have come, they could trace to Africa. Mm -hmm. So it had to be somebody who had access to it. Well, Doyle had traveled in Africa. Yeah. And, and the Mideast, I think. That's wonderful. Is there a major scholarly work on all of this, which has appeared in recent years? There's actually there's two or three things, though. There's a recent book called Piltdown, uh, yeah. which came out four or five years ago. In which he is fingered. Yes. Mm -hmm. as, as the as a, No, as a possibility, actually. Yeah. But there's another uh, essay, I don't know if it was in Scientific American or something like that, that came out before I think it, that. Yes, I think it was. It was one of the scientific yeah. journals, yes. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful angle. Let's go back to the phones. You are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you so very much. I am, uh, you know, an older gentleman, and I remember the Sherlock Holmes movies. And by coincidence, I just happened to turn your show on tonight. I would like a couple of questions. How many novels were written about Sherlock Holmes? And if I were to make a collection of those, where would I begin? <laughs> oh, gee, even I know the answer. There's an excellent new edition of uh, the full canon, which was published, what, by Oxford, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Oxford yeah. University Press. Six volumes. Very ha Is it six or? Nine. Nine volumes. I beg your pardon. Yeah. I have them. They sent the whole thing to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I lugged it home, though I haven't yet really cracked them open, but I think I will do so. In fact, I'm going on a trip to New York this weekend, and tonight's program has whetted my interest. I'm going to grab one or two of those volumes and take them along for reading on the plane. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, it's available in a nine-volume edition just brought out last year by Oxford University Press. Nine volumes, okay. Mm -hmm. Powell Bookstore might have it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I would think so. Okay, and how many stories were written? Fifty-six short stories and four novels. Fifty-six shorts and four novels. Wonderful. Well, I do appreciate it, and I'm enjoying your show very, very much. We thank you, sir, for the call, and on to another. Good evening. You're on the air. Yes, I know there were a couple of stories written about, like, Mycroft, a couple of stories including Mycroft Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, his brother, and I was That's just wondering right. which stories those were. Stories about Mycroft? Mm -hmm. The Greek Interpreter. And the Bruce Partington plans. Just, just in those two stories. Oh, okay, thanks. And also, you were talking about computer games, including Sherlock Holmes. There is this one game called um, The Lost Files of Sherlock Holmes, which is really a beautiful 256-color VGA game in which Sherlock Holmes is, like, going after Jack the Ripper. And it's really good. It really captures the Victorian setting. I mean, it has all the sounds of horses and doors opening and children running around the streets. I thought it was, like, a very good game for Sherlock Holmes. Has anyone on the panel ever played it before? No. 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 I know somebody who has and, and, and likes it very much. Oh, yes. It's very interesting. Oh. Well, sir, we thank you for the call. Thanks. Uh, in just the few minutes that are left, viewing this vast body of work as a literary achievement, uh, how great a literary achievement is it, would you say? And I turn necessarily to the resident... Uh, English professor at this table, namely Eli Lebo. Well, uh, I would say, number one, Holmes might be the most recognizable literary figure ever penned by an English or any author. I mean, Holmes probably is more rec recognizable than anybody, at least any human being. Mickey Mouse might come close. But uh, certainly, uh, Holmes is recognizable. I remember once going into a store where I was going to give a talk in Springfield, Massachusetts. And somebody said, why don't you get a deer stalker? I went to a store, and the woman behind the counter was from Columbia, South America. 
and she didn't understand much English, and I simply put my hands in front of my head, one hand in front, one behind, uh -huh. uh, showing her what a deer stalker looked like. She said, ah, Sherlock Holmes. So he's recognizable. Yeah. Well, we now truly come to the end yeah. of our revels. Uh, time has just about run out. With that, our thanks uh, once again to Thomas Joyce, to Eli Liebau, and to Susan Diamond for joining us tonight and to the many Sherlockians who called in. I think better than half of the callers were uh, friends of yours one way or another, were they not? And um, thanks to all for listening. And with that, we'll wind down for the evening with best wishes for a, a good weekend. And until next Tuesday night, a cordial good night to all.